What if there wasn't free will in the universe? What if everything was set in motion and couldn't become anything other than what it's going to be? If everybody thought that, how would that affect our sense of responsibility about doing the right and wrong things? Would we be more lenient? Let's talk about that. Ready? You've discovered the Pemology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pemology Society's founder, James Carvin. If there was no such thing as free will, how could Pemology serve to maximize awesomeness? You may have heard from certain physicists and neuroscientists who have downplayed the idea of free will. Even when you bring up the many worlds theory, physicists will diminish it by saying quantum mechanics is restricted to closing probability curves. There's no proof that improbable worlds exist, and there can be no empirical proof that any extratemporal universes exist either. Physicists prefer the world of the empirical to the land of theory. They wouldn't even be talking about many worlds theories if it weren't for the quirky behavior of particles of light that they've had the misfortune to observe. You send one particle at a time through two slots thousands of times with a particle beam. And instead of getting two sets of random splatters like you might see when shooting a gun at a target, you get a wave pattern. Why should there be a wave pattern for a single particle? Wave patterns only happen when there are undulating forces on the path from point A to Z. The particles act as if there are bunches of other particles acting at once, like the ripples on a pond that intersect when two rocks hit the surface within a few feet of each other. You should be aware that the quantum physicist will admit that the best explanation for this phenomenon is that there are many worlds, at least for particles of light. But don't expect them to conclude this tells us that the many worlds they've discovered through these experiments exhaust every possibility. They'll only admit that the light shot by their particle beams follows a probability curve. Multiverse theory props up all sorts of pseudoscience. As a believer in the multiverse, I'd like to not be guilty of that. Science and philosophy are fields that should be complementary, but the spooky behavior of particles at a distance that Einstein spoke of has been a bit of a Pandora's box for popular New Agers. Physicists have even found that observation affects results. What do you think an admission like that does for the Deepak Chopras of the world? But physicists won't necessarily conclude that consciousness is fundamental to reality either. All these observations really do is make them aware that more precise formulas have to be based on probability. They realize that no specific location of any particle can be predicted with accuracy. Do you understand the difference? Reality closes out the possibilities and probabilities with results that tend to be close to predictions according to bell curves, the shape of probability curves. Stuff that's outside those curves of probability isn't anything that they're observing. All physicists are doing is admitting that physics isn't fully predictable to the infinite decimal. Empiricists are happy to leave the wave patterns of light and the causes of the various quirks of subatomic particle behavior an unsolved mystery. 
Quantum mechanics simply is as quantum mechanics does. Physics has to deal with it the best that it can. There's no admission of far-out theories that we can raise our bongs to. But don't worry, I still believe in the multiverse, and I still have proof that the stuff outside the bell curve matters. Time and space are as subject to consciousness as ever, and that fact is more than a matter of the inadequacy of predictability. And most importantly, this isn't a lesson in quantum physics. I'm not qualified. I know enough about physics to know how much I don't know and know to leave it for the specialists. Neither am I a neuroscientist, but we're going to talk about that today, too. What I know quite a bit about is the philosophy of the mind, since at least that's been a concentration of mine in college. You also are probably aware that ever since Descartes was abandoned by the physicalists, neuroscience has been building stronger and stronger ties to philosophy, especially the philosophy of the mind. Pimology is the philosophy of awesomeness, awesomeology. All these sciences contribute to questions asked when we want to know how awesomeness could conceivably be maximized. If free will has a value to a best possible universe, then the question matters to awesomeology. But if neuroscience says that it doesn't exist, then what should we think? The unhappy marriage between neuroscience and free will started out with a basic identity theory that said that for each brain state, there would be a corresponding state of mind, thought, feeling, desire, and attention. Consciousness was a brain process and nothing more. So was the will. As neuroscience continued to influence the philosophy of the mind, more and more respected philosophers in academia came to see things this way. But it took them quite some time to get comfortable with it. First, they had to peel off their traditional beliefs about God. Then they had to embrace materialism. Materialism is the idea that even ideas are material things. They are matter. There's no such thing as mind over matter. There's only matter over matter. Of course, we all know that matter is not the same thing as energy, but when materialists speak of matter, they really mean both matter and energy, along with all the other subatomic phenomena and the fields that may compromise the fabric of the universe. To them, it's all physical stuff, material. So you call it materialism. You know what they mean, even though the you in what knows, to their minds, exists only in a universe whose probability curves have been closed. So you, as you, identified as you, are the you that your body and brain say you are. You have no spirit. You have no soul. All you are is dust in the wind. Your consciousness will not continue to exist once you disintegrate in the world that they see you in. Unless, by some improbable fluke, the universe happens to reconstitute a clone of you in some future time. Then the exact you of being you would live again because you would have the same exact brain states that would create your you-ness. Now, that's how they see it. They believe it. That's good enough for them. Not me. But you know I like thought experiments. So let's play along and meet some of the modern materialist philosophers and consider the implications of their determinism. So there's no such thing as free will, they say. Eh? To do this thought experiment, I'm going to summarize my notes on a meeting of the World Science Festival that took place on May 30th, 2015, hosted by Dr. Emily Sine. The modern attack on free will all started with experiments by the late neuroscientist Benjamin Libet. Subjects would be hooked up to an EEG that would record electrical impulses from their brain. 
They would also be given a button to press, and their muscle movements would be monitored with a timer. They were asked to randomly choose points in time to move their wrist, clicking on the button whenever they had made up their mind to move. The result of the experiment showed brain activity beginning about 500 milliseconds before each movement, while any awareness of a decision to move was taking place about 200 milliseconds before the movement, plus or minus about 50 milliseconds. This told Libet that a brain state preceded and corresponded to a decision in every case, and that if an action wasn't consciously made, then it wasn't freely made. Therefore, there was no such thing as free will. But you might object to that conclusion and say, well, of course. First, some deliberation about when or if to move would have to take place before becoming aware of a decision. Therefore, the lead time of the brain activity may have reflected that deliberation activity prior to the actual decision. That was certainly my first response. Why did Libet so quickly conclude that the brain activity had to be the cause of the thought rather than the thought the cause of the brain activity? And what would be the problem with free will, even if they concluded they were simultaneous? Couldn't will precede awareness of will? Alfred Melly, a philosophy professor at Florida State University, explains that Libet also tested for decisions not to do something, not just free will, but something called free won't. But would that help answer my question? This experiment was centered around preparing to do something, but then vetoing the decision and not doing it. Results showed brain activity prior to the decision in that case too, but does that mean free will is dead and free won't with it? Melly doesn't think so, and neither do I. For one thing, Melly doesn't think free will is a very clear term. Whether we say we believe in it depends on what we're thinking of when we say we do or don't. He likes dividing free will into three types. Premium, high test, and regular, like at a gas station. Regular free will, the 87 octane variety, just means that when making a decision you aren't compelled, that you're rational and unencumbered. The high test version, the 89 octane, costs a little bit more. For something to qualify as true free will for the 89 octaners, those people will have to say, that if you rolled back time to any decision you had ever made and had a second chance to make a decision in a perfectly parallel universe where everything, including your brain state, was exactly the same except the decision was still open. For free will to truly exist, you'd have to have the power to make a different decision in that moment. Now, in neither of the regular or high-test versions of free will that I just described is a soul required. That's reserved for the premium brand of free will at 91 octane, the one espoused by Rene Descartes. They call that substance dualism. 87 and 89 are for materialist monists. Got it? So, according to Dr. Melly, there are plenty of philosophers who believe in free will, but not in Descartes' premium free will. Most of them are monists, and there is no soul. Christoph Koch, a neurophysicist sitting beside Dr. Melly at the conference, shoots low. He speaks of the point of awareness a person experiences as they're making a decision as the feeling of agency. He's conducted some experiments that are a little more sophisticated than that of Benjamin Libet and demonstrates how it works by playing a game like rock, paper, and scissors called Penny with Dr. Melly. His experiments confirm Libet's findings against free will. Consistently, 
The feeling of agency follows specific brain activities that correspond to decisions that reflect the state of the mind and the state of the brain. The sense of free will always comes after the brain state corresponding to the decision by about a half a second. Now I find myself open to the idea that Melly and Koch may be right, but I'm far from convinced there's no soul. Who's to say there isn't an actual free moral agent in an extratemporal universe converging with a temporal one that stimulates the brain state, which subsequently stimulates the sense of free agency, which corresponds to the decision? If it's immaterial, it's not going to show up on an EEG or on any other instrument. Libet and Koch haven't proven anything against that. So no, I think there are two reasons, really, the soul is being discounted. The first one is that it can't be measured. Whoever said it could be? But let's think about this. There's only two places belief in the soul makes sense, either in the realm of faith or in the realm of reason. In the realm of reason, free will is going by the wayside due to the unpopularity of traditional religion among philosophers. There's some circular thinking involved there. What if the whole preference for empirical verification among academics, whether they be philosophers or scientists, in favor of materialism is due to the unanswered questions they have about the problem of evil? Start the circle of logic there. They're simply unbelievers. They had to fill in the gap with something. They have nothing else they can turn to. To their minds, any talk about an extra-temporal universal consciousness is entirely theoretical, and it's associated with theories that don't answer their own theoretical questions. Why is there evil in the world? I think that's a fair way to feel. Without a good explanation for evil, why should anyone believe there's a heaven, a god, or a soul, or many heavens, many souls, or spirits of any sort? Why not believe only in what we can observe? It's perfectly understandable. But if conclusions then all have to be based on what is observable, then it isn't the experiment that's answering the question about free will. It's their initial disposition that there's no soul. But for the sake of a thought experiment, let's suppose they're right about there being no subconscious agent that stirs on the brain states that subsequently correspond to the awareness of and feelings of moral agency that lead to decisions. What if they're right? Also in attendance at the science festival is the head of the culture and morality lab at the University of Oregon, Azim Sharif, a psychologist who has studied the implications of what learning that there is no such thing as free will might have on culture and morality. You might not be surprised to learn that in studies conducted of students who were given the opportunity to cheat on a difficult math test, the control group that had just learned that neuroscience does not support the notion of free will cheated significantly more often than the group that was not given that information prior to the same test. The less you believed in free will, the more you ended up cheating, reports Sharif. And there was another study done giving a control group the opportunity to steal. The results were very similar. There was even a study of aggressive behavior towards annoying people done. Those who believed in free will were less mean to people they didn't like than those who didn't. I'll spare you the details. Who would have guessed? The correlation is direct, 
significant, and proportional. But Sharif also points out that although disbelief in free will does seem to cause moral breakdown, it also decreases the tendency to judge, shame, and penalize offenders. We judge ourselves leniently, and neither do we support retribution on other people. We don't want to suffer for our transgressions, and we don't want others to suffer for theirs either. If we're asked what people deserve, punishments that have social benefit and utilitarian advantages might remain, but not retribution and shame and plain old punishment for doing something bad. What we see instead among those who no longer believe in free will is a preference for deterrence and rehabilitative sentencing recommendations. Sharif points out an exception for notorious killers who killed those we've personally loved, like the Boston Bomber, Osama Bin Laden, Adolf Hitler, or Jeffrey Dahmer. No matter what a person thinks about free will, there is a part of human nature, most likely connected to a certain type of brain state, according to all of these, that demands retribution. Nietzsche is, of course, quoted here. He calls free will the fallest of theologians' artifices. Is belief in free will an excuse we use to fill an inner desire that we have to punish without mercy? Maybe it is. A little moral inventory of ourselves never hurts. And in fact, Sharif also conducted a controlled study that asked about free will beliefs. Classes which are told that there's been someone who cheated on the exam in the last class consistently test higher on belief in free will, apparently to justify their desire to punish them. Nietzsche seems to have been on to something. Finally, a female panelist, a child development psychologist named Tamar Kushner, was given a chance to speak. To me, her most memorable quote was, Don't stop seeing possibilities, and you won't stop seeing choices. Maybe science is overcomplicating all this. She was able to show that even preschoolers know that we have free choice. On some level, we do choose, and those choices have everything to do with the beauty of possibility. To my mind, the maximization of awesomeness, no matter what grade of free will exists, requires the maximum number of choices. We may see choice and free will as two different things. Maybe they are. But tomorrow's right. If my mind lacks an awareness of what the possibilities are, it won't be able to choose among them. It'll have to stumble into them, or choose what little it has awareness of. The value of free will in the maximization of awesomeness is less of a concern than the more obvious value of abundant and even unlimited possibility. This brings us back to pimology. In order to become aware of all possibility, to maximize awesomeness, a multiverse that provides your awareness with a view of every possible choice is required. In that light, I'm going to still hold on to that premium level free will as a possibility. To know all possibility, you would have to know what is possible in more than one universe. Otherwise, how can your awesomeness be maximized? Otherwise, how will you be presented with the awareness of the most possible choices? If God is real as maximized awesomeness, then that would be normal. So let's step back now. I talked about the you that other people see as you, that they associate with the body and brain of yours that they see in this world. In putting it that way, I was suggesting that you might also have a brain and body, and who knows what else, in other worlds. Wouldn't that be good? Granted, none of the experimentalists at a World Science Festival are likely to agree on that point. 
I'll offer theoretical proofs, not experimentalists' ones. Still, the burden is on them to explain the fine-tuning of the universe for life in this moment now. I may not be able to offer evidentialist proof of the multiverse, but both quantum physics and fine-tuning for life in the observable universe do point to that theory. For that matter, so does foundationism. Take my Pomology 101 course and see. Pomology is built on foundationist arguments. Earn yourself a top hat. It's not a hard course, and it's free. I think the panelists are wrong. Having dismantled the problem of evil in previous episodes, the theory of maximized awesomeness is actually the strongest-looking argument that I've seen. This is especially the case when we add the argument I previously shared from probabilistic abduction, which asks, what game of life exists where the result of you experiencing consciousness right now, at this moment, places the odds most favorably? You being alive right now is better than getting a royal flush, but are you playing five-card stud or seven-card stud? What game of life is most likely to produce the result that the point in time now should be the point in time that you should be alive? It isn't the game that assumes that time marches uniformly from the past to the present to the future in relation to your consciousness over a matter of trillions of years without your consciousness being able to skip over the past and not land on the future. While the framework of time marching on, and sometimes very rarely having you included in it, is a possibility, it's perhaps the most improbable possible possibility. So I've been repeatedly telling you in my blogcast that it's far more plausible in terms of probability that time is subject to consciousness than it is that consciousness is subject to time, a fact that those invited to this type of panel have offered no evidence they've considered it. Now let's stop and think. My point of bringing up this conversation is to bring to our discussion a common understanding of what modern thinkers think about when they talk about free will. It's a little messy. People tend not to clarify. But now we've learned to make certain distinctions. And what have we learned? If we're going to suppose that moral agency is something that's real, we need first to introspect and make sure that we aren't insisting on it to justify mercilessness. The desire to unleash wrath and retribution to punish wrongdoers up and beyond preventative measures, deterrence, and the separation of hurtful people from society for the public good may be an evil in itself. And if there's a part of our brain that tends to love wrath, I think we should ask about the motives behind those feelings. If we can rage against someone who's done bad things to hurt those we know or love, do those feelings of wrath help us love ourselves because we're comparatively innocent? Do we need blame before we can love ourselves? Or is it about loyalty? Maybe we get so caught up in our empathy for victims, especially those we know or are on our side, that we lose our empathy for the perpetrators of crimes. Maybe it's none of that. Maybe it's fear. Maybe we want to control people. Maybe we're afraid other people will see they didn't get treated harshly and they'll hurt even more people that we love. We feel violated. Maybe we're just expressing our fear and pain as we regain control. But what if you had been the perpetrator of the crime that sets you off this way? Would you still be insistent on a harsh punishment? Or would you then want mercy? Wouldn't you plea for mercy? Justice... Punishment, retribution, wrath, public safety, remediation, empathy. There are a variety of ways we can respond to sin in this world when we see it. 
Some of us leave judgment up to God. We hope God will do what we fail to do. We console ourselves about injustice by thinking this. And we recognize that God is a better judge than we are. And while that's fine in the grand scheme of things, assuming the God theory is true, we still have the moral responsibility to chip in and make this present world the best that we can. We may not all be lawmakers. We may not all be able to elect the lawmakers that we want. But we can each do our part to contribute to the world's net good. We can each ask ourselves, in this moment and in this situation, given whatever power we do have, how can we maximize the good and minimize the bad? It's not necessarily about feelings of judgment. Move on. It's about personal responsibility. What are you supposed to do? What possibilities are in front of you? Use your imagination. Some are long-term, some are short. There's a lot that's within your power even if you're getting old or sick, or you're very young or poor, and even if you don't have much. Nobody knows you better than you do. So put on your thinking cap and imagine. Whether or not you think that chemistry and particles are set in motion that will force you to make your decision for you, the imperative to do all the good you can while you can still calls on you and you can heed its voice. What you choose to do, or are forced by the energy of molecules to do, whichever is the case, doesn't have to seem wonderfully noble. It doesn't have to be selfless. It doesn't have to be for anyone else. Maybe the most good you could do would be to go treat yourself to an ice cream or goof off with an old friend. How will you maximize your personal awesomeness? I don't know. It's your job to figure that out and go for it. Or not. But I think you will. I think you'll want to. And I think you'll do it. I think that's why you're here. So if you believe the world is deterministic, if you think it's all set in motion and there's no such thing as free will, then just fine. There's still plenty of good possibility to choose from. The compatibility of determinism and free will is something philosophers call compatibilism. Not all agree with compatibilism, but those who do accept that the world is set in motion and predetermined, but they still find room for free will in some sense. Maybe just the ability to make choices, moral or not. I think that compatibilism might have some value, whether or not it takes a soul or spirit that rules the mind out of the equation. No matter the underlying truth in that philosophical question, I think that's why you're here. This is something I want to talk about some more, so next time we'll do just that. Ciao! Thank you for listening to the Pemology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pemology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pemology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true. true. I've got good news for you.